Welcome to CNN Tonight. I'm Jake Tapper, and tonight we're less than a month, 27 days away from one of the weirdest and least predictable midterm elections in modern memory. What's happening now and ending on Election Day, November 8th, is not typical. It's not, as of now, it's not shaping up to be a, a wave for one party or another. No, it's more like a Sharknado. Now, typically, Republicans would and should be feeling pretty good about their chances to retake both the House and the Senate by significant margins, feeling good because things are bad. With high inflation and fears of a recession, voters are inclined to hold the party in power. Right now, that's Democrats, responsible and accountable. Because prices are up almost everywhere you look. Life is more expensive. By which, of course, I mean life cereal, wheat, and processed wheat products, up more than 20% year to year. And as the late great rapper Humpty Hump might say, straight butter, baby. By which, of course, I mean that the cost of butter is up 30% August to August. And, of course, our friends in Saudi Arabia are making sure we all continue to feel more pain at the pump. Thanks, MBS. Fist bump. That's too much. Hit me hard. I'm over it. I'm very unhappy. Prices are crazy. And as President Biden told me on last night's show, it could all very well get worse. I don't think there will be a recession. If it is, it'll be a very slight recession. That is, we'll move down slightly. It's possible. I don't anticipate it. And all that turmoil is reflected in a brand new CNN poll showing that you, America, don't think economic conditions in the U.S. are good right now. You give President Biden bad marks on the economy, and you think the government is not doing enough to stop a possible recession. So for Democrats on the ballot, this is what they say in the biz this is serious headwinds, more like gale force winds, actually. Put on those mittens, Bernie. We should point out, there are some issues where Democrats might have an edge. They're putting a big focus right now on abortion rights since the overturning of Roe v. Wade is no longer theoretical and severe laws opposed by the general public are sweeping state legislatures. Banning all abortions, even when a woman's life is at risk. He supports outlawing all abortion. And Paul Young called abortion made-up rights for women. I was personally disgusted. Women would have no choice because Ashley Hinson decided for them. But frankly, that, that might not be enough because polling shows Republicans are favored on some of the issues voters care most about. Not just the economy, but also immigration. And crime. So you can see why, in your average swing congressional district or battleground state, Republicans would be feeling pretty good until, until, until they head to their Republican county potluck and run into this guy, Ohio Republican House candidate J.R. Majewski. You probably most recently heard of him as having falsely claimed to have served in Afghanistan, according to the Associated Press. Though so you may have first met him when you saw that he turned his lawn into a 19,000-square-foot Trump 2020 sign, or perhaps you know him from his career as a rapper. This is our last chance. This the hill we die on. This the line in the sand. Leave no one on the battlefield. United we stand. That is no Humpty Hump. But that performance is not nearly as disturbing as the fact that Majewski went on Fox wearing a QAnon T-shirt. QAnon the deranged conspiracy theory that a, a cabal of Democrats and Hollywood producers are part of a 
satanic, cannibalistic cult of pedophiles. That QAnon shirt is one that should have the sleeves that tie in the back. And that's what brings us to what Biden's pollster, John Anzalone, says is so far keeping the midterm election from being a complete Republican romp, which theoretically it should be, given the economy and disapproval of the president. Anzalone says these midterms are a case of the head wins versus the head cases. Now, maybe you don't like that framing. It does come from a Democratic partisan, but Anzalone is also acknowledging massive disapproval of his own party, particularly on the economy. And it's really essentially the same argument that we heard from Senator Mitch McConnell when he talked about candidate quality, possibly keeping him from becoming Republican majority leader again. Candidates whose races are far more competitive than they should be given the givens. Herschel Walker in Georgia, Blake Masters in Arizona, Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania. And then, of course, there are those candidates with fringe ideologies. Yeah, the price of breakfast cereal is skyrocketing, but some of these candidates are cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. And, and singing from the Donald Trump election grievance songbook. It is not right that hundreds of thousands of votes are allowed to be considered as lawful votes when we know they're illegal. It's not right is correct. It's not right. That's inaccurate. Unhinged lies born from Donald Trump's grievance that he lost and his, his refusal to accept reality. All of us here today do not want to see our election victory stolen by emboldened radical left Democrats. You don't concede when there's theft involved. It was after that speech, of course, when masses of Trump supporters then stormed the Capitol, leading to one of the darkest days in modern U.S. history. And some of the folks who played a role in that insurrection, they're, they're on ballots across the country right now, such as Doug Mastriano in the great Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. He comes from the farthest of the fringe right. He even hired the anti-Semitic founder of the fringe social media company Gab as a consultant. Mastriano, the Republican nominee for governor, he can be seen in this photo dressed as a Confederate soldier uh, and in this one at the Capitol on January 6th. Voting integrity. Wow. Oh, my goodness. I've seen better elections in Afghanistan, not hyperbole. He's right. It's not hyperbole. It's just utter crap. And in Pennsylvania, the governor appoints the secretary of state to run elections. So it's, it's totally possible that an election liar could appoint the person who oversees elections in one of the most crucial battleground states in America. A lot of this going around in battleground states. Arizonans, they elect secretaries of state to run their elections. This is Republican nominee Mark Fincham, who threw his tinfoil hat into the ring for that position. Fincham was also outside the Capitol January 6th, and he's proudly running on a platform of refusing to count the ballots that go for candidates he doesn't like. But knowing what we know today, there are certain counties that should have been set aside as irredeemably compromised. Maricopa County was one of them. Maricopa County, of course, you remember that exhaustive far-right partisan audit was conducted there. That's where the cyber ninjas were literally holding up ballots looking for bamboo fibers. Yes, bamboo, I said. This is part of this deranged conspiracy theory that Chinese ballots, with a bamboo, of course, had been shipped into Arizona. 
Now, look, I can see where maybe some of you are at home thinking, these people aren't in office right now, and, and they never will be. But A, oh, they absolutely could win, given the economic headwinds. And B, this anti-democracy insanity, it's already infiltrated the same halls of Capitol Hill where the rioters once stood. After she was released from prison, January 6th insurrectionist Simone Gold was greeted by none other than Texas Republican Congressman Louie Gohmert, who gave her an American flag, one that had flown over the very capital that she had attacked. She is out, it's Freedom Day, and uh, thank God that he sent us Simone Gold. Ask the Capitol Hill cops how much of a role they think God played in sending Simone to the Capitol that day. And here's where politics gets even more cynical. Because Democrats describe these candidates as an existential threat to American democracy. Folks, you know, we talk about democracy, whether it's at risk. Well, democracy is at risk in most places when the only definition of whether you win, you either have to win the election or it's been stolen. Sure, absolutely. Except across the country, Democratic campaigns and Democratic outside groups have spent tens of millions of dollars trying to help these election liars win their Republican primaries, at least $52 million, according to CNN's calculations, because they think these existential threats to democracy will be easier for them to beat in November than normal Republicans would be. Take Michigan freshman congressman and actual combat veteran Peter Meyer. Meyer was one of just 10 Republicans who voted to impeach Donald Trump after January 6th. That's a tough vote for anyone, much less a freshman. Meyer was running for re-election this year. Democrats repaid the favor by spending more than $400,000 to boost his fringe opponent, Trump-backed John Gibbs. Previously obscure, a guy who had written that women should never have been given the right to vote. And of course, he's a sharer of Trump's big election lie. And the result of that money from the Democrats? Gibbs won his Republican primary, and Meyer is leaving politics. The race this November, it's still a toss-up. And it is possible that another election liar will end up in Congress, to which Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger says this. If Peter's opponent wins and goes on to November and wins, that the Democrats own that. Congratulations. Don't keep coming to me asking where are all the good Republicans that defend democracy and then take your donor's money and spend half a million dollars promoting one of the worst election deniers that's out there. So how do the Democrats explain this? The political decisions that are made out there are made uh, in furtherance of our winning the election because we think the contrast between Democrats and Republicans as they are now is so drastic that we have to, we have to win. We have to win, Pelosi says. Therefore, they are nominating fringe candidates in the Republican Party. I'm trying to think of other times that Democrats were convinced a candidate was so extreme there was no way he could win the general election. Can anyone, anyone think of an example? All of this leaves you, the voter, in sort of an impossible position. You should be able to walk into that voting booth and vote on issues that affect your life, like the economy or crime or education or health care. But now in too many races, instead of asking yourself, 
what can this candidate do for me and my community and my children in the next two years? You now also have to ask, hey, does this candidate believe in democracy? Tomorrow, the January 6th committee will argue that Donald Trump does not believe in democracy and that he is a clear and present danger to democracy. The panel's about to have its last public hearings before the midterm elections. One last chance to try to convince rational Americans about the dangers of the anti-democracy movement, one that pushes the former president's election lies and sometimes encourages violence. Coming up, a key witness from a previous hearing, former Trump Deputy White House Press Secretary Sarah Matthews in her first live interview. So the January 6th House Select Committee is trying to stick the landing. I'm told tomorrow's hearing uh, will serve as the committee's basically closing argument before the midterms to voters. One of the star witnesses so far has been Trump's former White House Deputy Press Secretary Sarah Matthews, uh, who resigned on January 6th. She testified publicly before the committee in July, and she joins us now in her first live TV interview ever. Don't be scared. (laughs) So you worked in the White House for Trump. Um, I guess the big question that we're going to hear tomorrow is, do you think Donald Trump poses a threat to democracy? I do think that he poses a threat to democracy. I think that January 6th showed that, and that was part of my reason for resigning. Um, He failed to act that day. He had every opportunity to call off the mob and condemn the violence. We've seen from tape testimony uh, from several of my colleagues that folks were pleading with him to do that, and he didn't ever pick up the phone once. And I think that the January 6th committee has laid that out. But furthermore than just January 6th, He's continued to push the lie that the 2020 election was stolen from him with zero evidence of that. And I think that that does pose a threat to our democracy. Was there anything on that day, January 6, 2021, was there a specific straw that broke the camel's back or was it just the accumulation of everything? I do think that it was a slow burn for me, you know, the accumulation of him pushing the election uh, lie that it was stolen. But probably on January 6, when he tweeted out the video Uh, After everything we had witnessed, him saying, oh, we love you, you're very special to his supporters, that was really the moment for me when I knew that I was going to resign. While you were testifying a few months ago, the House Republican Conference, the official Twitter feed uh, for the House Republican Conference, they attacked you, they smeared you. Um, And at the time, You were working for House Republicans, I think on the Environment uh, and Public Works Committee or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, I know you didn't know about it in real time, and probably by the time you found out about it, they had deleted it, but that must have felt horrible. Yeah, I thought it was definitely an embarrassing look for them. I was a current House staffer at the time, and for them to tweet that out, uh, they can't claim ignorance. I know the people on Elise Stefanik's team personally. That's the number three Republican in the House who's, who can who's in charge of the conference, yeah. Exactly, and so they know that I was a current House staffer, and I think what was most astonishing to me about them tweeting that out was they tweeted it calling me a liar before I ever even opened my mouth. So they didn't even hear what I had to say in my testimony. And I don't think what I said in my testimony was proof that I was lying. There was nothing to be lying about because everything I said has been corroborated in the tape testimony that we've seen from my colleagues, that President Trump had people around him begging him to condemn the violence, to call off the mob, and he did not act. Yeah, no, it was a bad look for them. That's a, that's a nice way to put it. I mean, it was there. too many people in the party have become trolls. Um, 
Based on your experience with Kaylee McEnany, who was the press secretary while you were her deputy, other people like Stephen Miller, other people who worked in the White House, do you think they actually believe these lies about the election being stolen despite there being no evidence of widespread fraud? Um, or, or do you think they're just play acting because it keeps them in Donald Trump's good graces? You know, I can't speak for specific people, but I will say that I think it's a little bit of both. I think there are some folks who know better and are smart enough to see through this. They know that there's no proof of the election being stolen, but they wish to stay in the good graces of Trump world and they prioritize their you know, ambition and careers for that. But then I do think there are some people who truly are detached from reality and have convinced themselves enough that the election was stolen. And just to remind people, you are a conservative Republican. Correct. Um, is there still a place for you in the Republican Party, do you think? I still think there is a place. I'm hopeful that by speaking out and saying that Donald Trump is lying to the American people about the 2020 election, that it will hopefully encourage more people to come forward and acknowledge this. And um, I think that the more people that are willing to stand up and speak the truth um, will save the Republican Party. But I'm not encouraged by the direction that it's headed right now. We've seen a lot of brave young women from the Trump White House, you, Cassidy Hutchinson, Alyssa Farrah Griffin, coming forward. I wish uh, that some of the middle-aged men who had been in positions of power over you uh, had such courage. Uh, Sarah Matthews, thanks so much. Good to see you. Thanks for being here tonight. From one of the most notorious liars in the history of the presidency to one of the most notorious liars in American pop culture. Coming up next, the face that launched a thousand ripoffs and one very popular Netflix series. My interview with Anna Sorokin, a.k.a. Anna Delvey, now rocking the ankle monitor. That's next. Tonight, she is back out in the world. Well, kind of. Convicted con artist and fraudster Anna Sorokin is now under house arrest after being released from prison last week. You might know her story from the hit Netflix show, Inventing Anna, where she is portrayed as an epic scammer. Sorokin served nearly four years in prison, but after being released on parole, she was then arrested again, this time by immigration for overstaying her visa. Sorokin is now awaiting her immigration hearing. I sat down with her earlier today in her apartment in Manhattan. So you're out of detention uh, for the first time in a year and a half. You've been here at this apartment since Friday night. Um, How does it feel to be semi-free? Well, I'm so happy uh, to be giving this opportunity. Um, I feel like I'm getting a second chance to um, fix my mistakes. Yeah, and I'm so happy ICE agreed to release me, even if it's just house arrest. House arrest, and you have this ankle monitor here. I do. Is that annoying? No, um, I'm getting used to it. They tighten it up a little bit, uh, so it's not dangling as it used to. Are you allowed to leave the apartment at all? No. Not at all? No. Well, I'm supposed to check in with my um, criminal parole and my ICE um, officers, but otherwise, no. And do you have any idea how long you're going to be in house arrest? No, not yet. We're like figuring it out now. Figuring it out. Yeah. And I'm trying to think how you pass the time. I know you do art now. This is, a, this is your work. Um, so this is a reproduction uh, of one of my sketches, The Delvey Crimes. And then you have this free time. I don't know if you've had any time to binge any TV shows. Oh, no. There's one know. on Netflix <laughs> called Inventing Anna. I'm not sure if you've seen it. No, not yet. You haven't seen it? No. But I saw like about half an hour of it. Maybe it's what's help if you stop thinking about me like everyone else. Like basic, you know? 
have you heard like do you think she got your accent because it became it became her depiction of your accent was so famous for a while there was even a skit on Saturday Night Live about it and you know people would do the you know, you're so basic the people would do the accent is that I mean is that something you enjoyed or thought was weird or what um, I don't think I sound like it but I think she got me from the time before because I used to like 10 years ago I used to travel so much um, when I was like in my mid-20s um, but now I just spend so much time in the, in the States and I've like only been speaking English so I guess my accent is not as strong as it used to be so I wonder you 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 wanted to be famous and well-connected you came to New York with all sorts of plans and, and you're now known as a notorious con artist and, and, and grifter and liar. Um, and I'm wondering, do you, have, do you have any regrets? Absolutely, yes. Um, I feel so sorry for um, a lot of the choices I've made. But I also feel like I've learned so much and like I grew as a person. Have you apologized to anyone? Um, yes, I did. Who? Um, well, I said, um, like, I'm very sorry for all the, decision I was, the decisions I've made. Oh, in court, you mean, you said it. But have you reached out to anybody? Have you reached out to any of your friends or the hotels or the restaurants or anyone? Well, I didn't steal any money from friends. The only friend uh, that was involved in my criminal case, I got acquitted of that count. Right. And everybody else is a financial institution. But when you say right now, you just said that, you know, what you did, you did it to financial institutions. It doesn't sound like you really regret what you did. You sound like you're almost kind of like casting it as though it was a victimless crime. It wasn't a victimless crime, right? I mean, you took advantage of people. I definitely did, yeah. And I was younger, and I learned from my mistakes. But did you? I did. Did, did yes. you learn from those mistakes? I mean, are you not going to do anything like this ever again? Absolutely not. So you served um, twenty months in in pretrial uh, detention in at Rikers. Then you were convicted. You did another twenty months. Then you were released. And then instead of going back to Europe, you did eighteen months here in the United States in immigration custody. That's right. But why not be free in Europe instead of in detention in the United States? Can you help me understand Because I'm that? trying to uh, fix the mistakes I've done in the past. And I feel like if I were to leave and say, oh, whatever, I'm just going to do, um, I'm just going to, going to move on and like move to Europe, um, I would be like accepting the labels that they're trying to slap on me. So I think like me just staying in jail and trying to prove people wrong got to stand for something. I hope people will recognize it. But what do you mean prove people wrong? By staying in the United States and doing what? What are you, How are you going to prove anybody wrong? Well, I'm still on my criminal parole. I'm still with ICE. You know, I'm trying to comply with all the rules and restrictions that are placing on me and just kind of change the narrative. What's your case to immigration for why you should get to stay in the United States after everything that happened? Why should the American people let you stay here knowing how effectively you conned and fleeced so many Americans uh, here already. Well, I feel like I deserve a second chance. It was one mistake that I've made, and I've served my time, and uh, I feel like I should deserve a second opportunity. Do you think there's something about the United States where we are fascinated by con artists, grifters, liars? Is there something that we, that we like, that we find interesting? Um... I would say so, yes. I was thinking if I were to uh, be prosecuted for similar crimes in Germany, I don't think people would really care. Is that right? Yeah. So I feel like um, I never really wanted to be famous. and um, You didn't want to be famous? You no. just wanted to be influential and well-connected. Yeah, I just wanted to like work on my business. And um, I feel like part of it was the prosecution, the way they portrayed me, and just the media. They kind of created this idea of me, and I'm just being left to deal with it. 
right But you now. convinced people that you were an heiress, that you had lots of money that you didn't have. and I actually never said that to anybody. That oh. was just an assumption they um, had. Well, see, you're saying all this stuff to me. It doesn't sound like... It doesn't sound like you're really actually all that repentant. It doesn't sound like you're actually really regret what you did or even necessarily think you did anything wrong. I mean, I've definitely uh, did like a lot of, I, did, I made a lot of wrong choices. Like what? While just misrepresenting, I guess, my financial, my financials to financial institutions. Mm -hmm. But I'm trying to like not glamorize my crimes and not um, lead anybody to believe that that's the way to get famous because I suffered a lot as a result, like as a consequences of my actions too. Even though like I don't always show it, um, I'm not like going to go on TV and cry, but like I've done a lot of time in jail and it's been um, very hard a lot of times. So what's the plan now for how you're going to support yourself? Um, I am working on my podcast and on doing more of my art. I'm so very happy. I've been afforded a second chance to um, like to stay here and to fix my mistakes and um, hopefully I will be known for some of my legit projects and not just what I've been trying to do when I was in my early to mid-20s. Okay. The best is yet to come. Is what yes. Okay. <laughs> and you can see even more of our interview uh, with Anna on, on Twitter and on CNN.com, including her thoughts on the U.S. criminal justice system and how she says she wants to work to change it. The Sixth Amendment guarantees that we can all get a lawyer to defend us if we're charged with a crime. It does not guarantee that you will get a good lawyer. Coming up, an example so disturbing that I just couldn't be silent about it. With a defense lawyer like this, who needs prosecutors? How bad can a lawyer be and still be considered adequate counsel in the United States? That's a question that has plagued me for the past two years while researching a story I first learned about through my dad. It's the question that's at the center of a story I wrote, a cover story for The Atlantic out today that examines the case of C.J. Rice. In 2013, C.J. Rice was a Philadelphia teen. He was sentenced to up to 60 years in prison for four counts of attempted murder. Now, Rice not only has insisted on his innocence, but my dad, who was his pediatrician at the time, has said that Rice would have been physically incapable of committing the crime in question. Now, you would think that that would have played a key part, a key role in his defense, but it's just one of the many ways his lawyer failed C.J. Rice. And the injustice, it's far worse than I ever could have imagined. This is my dad, Dr. Theodore Tapper, who spent decades as a pediatrician in South Philadelphia. For years, my dad's been telling me about a former patient, C.J. Rice, currently doing 30 to 60 years in prison for a crime my father insists Rice could physically not have committed. It was impossible. No DNA, no guns found, no crime scene evidence ties Rice to the September 2011 nighttime shooting and wounding of four people. One eyewitness who had known C.J. for years initially and repeatedly told police she could not identify the two gunmen. I think it was approximately 20 hours where she had spoken to at least, I think it was three different officers and had never said, look, this is somebody that's in my neighborhood. But overnight, police say a confidential informant told them that Rice may have been involved. 
So detectives then showed this photo array to the eyewitness, and she then fingered Rice. Three years later, Philadelphia police changed policy, barring any investigating detectives from conducting the lineups because of the possibility of suggestion. This is the position where one of the shooters was, the one that was ID'd as C.J. Rice, the night of September 25th, 2011. The eyewitness testified that he was 20 feet away. 20 feet away, however, would actually have put him like here. This is 20 feet away. Where I was before, all the way over there, that's more like 50 feet away, maybe even more, depending on exactly where he was behind this car that was over here. Witnesses said they saw the gunman running, but my dad had examined the 17-year-old C.J. Rice just five days earlier, and he insisted C.J. was in no condition to run. He had staples in his abdomen over approximately an eight or nine inch surgical incision from his breastbone straight down as far as you could go. That's because three weeks earlier, C.J. Rice had been shot three times in a case of what he thought was mistaken identity. There was no way this young man, five days after I saw him, was running anywhere, let alone walking fast. My dad demonstrates here just how slowly he remembers C.J. Rice leaving his office that day. With great difficulty and with very great slowness. When C.J. Rice was named as a suspect, his mother, Crystal Cooper, met him at the police station so he could turn himself in. And the detective took his arm to help him walk up the stairs. C.J.'s family could not afford legal counsel, so court-appointed private attorney Sanjay Weaver took his case on. And Weaver did not provide C.J. with an adequate defense. Weaver appears to have never visited the crime scene. She never obtained the location data for Rice's cell phone, which he told her to do, since he said it would show that he was nowhere near the crime scene. After the trial, then C.J. started telling me, oh, she should have did this, I told her to do this. She didn't listen to me. She never prepared or even met with witnesses, such as my father, who met her for the very first time on the day he was to testify at trial about CJ's wound and pain. Every time I talked extensively with the, with the lawyers in person, in their office, this is the only time I had never had a conversation of any length at all before the trial. At the trial, Sanjay Weaver never requested that Rice's case be decertified to juvenile court. She never mentioned that the only eyewitness to place CJ at the scene initially failed not once, but three times to identify him as the shooter. She never challenged the eyewitness about the inaccurate assessment of her distance from the shooters. She never introduced Rice's hospital records. Before the trial in 2013, I had not seen any hospital records at all. My dad obtained them a few years later after the trial at C.J. Rice's request. Many things surprised me. One was a bullet that fractured his pelvis. It just made it even firmer belief that there's no way he could have run. C.J. Rice had an alibi, a witness who said he was with him the night of the shooting. Just from a view of the record, it seemed that the alibi was, you know, ill-prepared. There was nothing to corroborate it. But unlike with C.J.'s co-defendant, whose alibi witnesses told their stories to the police long before the trial, 
Sanjay Weaver never told CJ's alibi witness to give a statement. So on the stand, the prosecutor turned Weaver's incompetence into evidence of him lying, asking the witness, quote, today is the first day that you got in front of anybody other than the defense attorney and told them about where CJ was. Sanjay Weaver also inexplicably called someone who was not with CJ at the time of the crime as an alibi witness. It all made CJ look guilty. We can't ask Sanjay Weaver about any of this. She passed away in 2019. CJ's co-defendant was acquitted. CJ was sentenced to 30 to 60 years in prison. If there were a new trial and some of these things were addressed, the jury would have a hard time not having a reasonable doubt. CJ's new attorney, Jason Kadish, applied for conviction relief in county court, arguing that CJ Rice had ineffective counsel. But the same judge who had presided over CJ Rice's trial heard the appeal and he rejected it. CJ Rice's story, which I tell in the new issue of The Atlantic magazine, is important because of how unusual it is not. A poor kid with no means and an incompetent court-appointed lawyer. The assembly line of a criminal justice system too often not focused on justice. My father continues to support and exchange letters with C.J. Rice in prison. C.J.'s mom holds on to memories and holds out hope that he will one day be free if someone in power seeks to right what she sees as an injustice. Of course, witness testimony can be notoriously unreliable. More than two-thirds of the people exonerated with the Innocence Project's help, DNA evidence, two-thirds of them involved eyewitnesses who were ultimately proven wrong. And Barry Sheck from the Innocence Project is here with us. Also, Van Jones, who is working to get C.J. Rice out of prison. They join me next. Stay with us. We just told you the story of C.J. Rice. His story reminds us that the Sixth Amendment, which guarantees the right to counsel and a competent one, really is nothing more than an empty promise in the United States. Joining us now to discuss Barry Sheck, co-founder of the Innocence Project, and Van Jones. He's an activist for criminal justice reform, and he's working on C.J.'s case. Van, let me start with you. Um, There's something really to be said about how C.J.'s case was handled to begin with. The cops just went into it with this was a rival gang shooting thing. Um, and they didn't really seem, it really seemed like there was just a desire, we just need to make an arrest, we need to make an arrest, and not really, we need to search for justice here and figure out who did it. Well, well, first, I just want to thank you, and I want to thank your dad. Now, your dad is a bulldog. <laughs> your dad is just, but he just will not let this thing go, and as a result, maybe we'll get some kind of justice. You know, Brian Stevenson, the great, he says, it is America now, it is better to be rich and guilty than poor and innocent. So if you are poor and innocent, the chances of you getting a good lawyer are not what they should be. And this is a case that shows you did more work to figure out what happened than the cops, the prosecutors, or the defense attorney. And once you look, you start looking under, look under these rocks, what you find is a system that's broken. It's a broken system. Uh, uh, the, the Sixth Amendment, all these conservatives love the Constitution. The Sixth Amendment says if the state comes against you, you get a good lawyer. It's no longer true in America. And, and Barry, we need to point out, because your organization, the Innocence Project, has done such important work, and you've highlighted how mistaken eyewitness identifications uh, are the leading factor for wrongful convictions. Nearly 70% of your 375 DNA exonerations involved eyewitnesses who have been proven to be wrong. But this is not something that the American people necessarily know, uh, and if they're not told it, they just believe people. 
Well, you know, I think we've made a lot of progress as Chief Ramsey actually instituted some reforms in, uh, in Philadelphia and Pennsylvania has done something on eyewitness identification. But the ineffective assistance of counsel issue is the hardest. Mm. Justice Marshall dissented in the Strickland case, which set out the standard. And what he said is the standard for ineffective assistance of counsel that we used to say, if you put a mirror under the nose of the lawyer and it fogs up, then you have an effective <laughs> lawyer but for purposes of the courts. But the truth is, we do not have an objective standard. Marshall pointed out that the way they wrote the standard is that it depended on the locale. If you're in a locale where they didn't have good lawyers, particularly when they aren't paying court-appointed lawyers very much money, which was, was going on here, although she was uniquely bad. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, you're, and, and by the way, if, if you're that bad with those problems, you should be thrown off those panels. Right. And people don't do that. With lawyers protect themselves. But a bad lawyer, we can't even calculate how many people are innocent and convicted by the bad lawyers and, frankly, sentenced to far more time than they ever would have gotten as this lawyer didn't put this uh, poor young man in juvenile court where his sentence would have been a lot less. Yeah, 30 to 60 years for a crime in which nobody was even seriously injured, much less uh, uh, killed. And as you note um, and have noted before, I mean, you can be drunk as a lawyer or arrested for drunk driving on the way to the courthouse. You can fall asleep. You can literally be disbarred during the trial, and that's all considered kosher uh, in our judicial system. And, and Van, a lot of people don't realize the significant difference between a public defender who are often excellent attorneys Mm -hmm. and court-appointed attorneys who are, they don't have as good a track record. They they don't, and sometimes the financial incentives make it even worse. So you have public, public defenders, they're lifelong, they're committed, they do it all the time. You have other lawyers, they pick up these cases for money. And they get paid the same if they do a good job or a bad job. They get paid the same, as you point out in your piece. If they work on the case for 10 hours or 10,000 hours, they get paid the same. So the incentive, as you point out, is to get a bunch of cases and do the minimum amount of work. And that results in a lot of injustice. One positive, though, is that people are fighting back. Um, uh, Dream.org has a petition up now uh, to get people who want to see this case resolved differently to go to Dream.org's petition and sign up. You've got lawyers like Aaron Haney uh, from the Reform Alliance who's, who's now getting involved and in, in fighting back. So this particular case, I think it started a real movement. Uh, you, have, uh, there, there, uh, you have Shapiro, uh, Krasner, and Fetterman, three of the big legends in Pennsylvania politics. Any of those three could take this case, case up and do something about it. I think this could start a movement for, uh, to change this country where the Sixth Amendment applies again. What are the conservatives concerned about? The big government. Big government's going to come and get you. Right. The only thing is in, the, in the Constitution that protects you, the Sixth Amendment says a lawyer can help you, and they need to join with us to make that real again. And Barry, I was saying during the commercial break, once you, once you see the injustices built into the system, you can't unsee them. And I was stunned to find out in Pennsylvania they have a thing called a PCRA. You, you want to say, I didn't get a fair trial uh, in, in the courtroom of this judge. Guess who you go to? To, to, to get a ruling on that. The same judge. How many judges are going to be like, yeah, you're right, I did a bad job here? Ask Meek Mill. Um, but, but, you know, the one point I'd really like to make here is that John Fath wrote a great book called Locked Up about uh, over-incarceration in this country, uh, and myself and others have been asking for a Marshall Plan for Indigent Defense. Mm. And frankly, that's not a lot of money when you can think about it 
in terms of, you know, what we're spending in so many areas. And you've got to do it now because you talked about what could happen in Pennsylvania. Well, you've got to raise the standard of practice. You have to make it by statute an objective standard for what constitutes effective assistance of counsel. You know, real categories, because what Marshall was complaining about from the beginning, he really knew, yeah. right, is that unless you lay it out and you have constitutional standards, uh, and it'll have to be done in the state, because Justice yeah. Alito has already told us he doesn't want ABA standards constitutionalized. It's got to be state by state by state. Yeah, and again, none of us want guilty people roaming the streets. We all want guilty people in prison. The question is, are we sending innocent people to prison because of the, uh, the inequities in the system? Van Jones, Barry Check, it's so great to have you here. Thank you uh, so much. Thanks so much for joining us tonight. I'll be back tomorrow night with Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger. He's on the January 6th Select Committee. This will be his first interview following tomorrow's hearing, which we're told will be the last one before the midterm elections. That's tomorrow night at 9 o'clock Eastern. Until then, you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. Our coverage continues now with Laura Coates. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.